Hi, and welcome to the DebtWire Middle Market Podcast. I'm Bill Weisbrod, Senior Reporter with DebtWire. Today, we're going to talk about a topic always relevant to the middle market, business development companies, or BDCs. We're joined by a pair of Proskauer attorneys who specialize in BDCs. Senior counsel David Marcinkus, who recently joined the firm from the SEC, where he was branch chief for the agency's Division of Investment Management, specializing in regulations regarding BDCs and other permanent capital vehicles. Hey, David. Hey, Bill. How are you? Glad to be here. Good. Thanks for joining us. And we're also joined by partner Will Tuttle, who advises BDCs and asset managers on matters such as fund formation and structuring. Hey, Will. Hello. A pleasure to be here. Thank you both for joining us. So let's start off by talking about regulations of BDCs. So specifically, how does the SEC monitor BDC portfolio marks or disclosures? And what's that process like? Because as someone who looks at those marks pretty frequently in covering these funds and these companies and these deals, I'm always curious about that. Yeah, Bill, happy to talk about that. So the the thing about valuation generally is you know, it's really the most important thing, right? I mean, it's it's why people invest. A lot of the other regulation, you know, has to do with conflicts and what have you. But at the end of the day, what what people care about is is the number. So the the number is is obviously critically important. But but it's important to understand the 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 role of the regulator in, in that in that regard. The the staff is not in the position doesn't have the time, doesn't have the resources, and frankly, it's not not their role as a regulator to be out there second-guessing your marks. So w- what are they doing, really? Uh, they, they're looking for outliers, if they're looking for anything at all. Um, they might look for marks that haven't changed or haven't changed much. Uh, they might look for things that are still being carried at cost. Uh, it's not unheard of for the staff to give comments if they have reason to question whether something has changed too much or not changed at all but but in the in the in the normal course that's that's really not not their role the the way the way the the investment company act set has set up valuation is for bdcs and registered funds is that it's it's the board's responsibility uh that that doesn't mean the board has to do it themselves the board can get help from the advisor and pricing vendors, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the board is the ultimate uh, arbiter of fair value for, for the types of investments that BDCs make, which typically don't have market prices. Um, so what, 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 might, what might a reviewer on the staff be looking at? Well, they might be looking at situations where and this might be rare for BDCs if if more than one fund holds the same asset. Um, you know, this I think might happen more. You know, for example, like in a like in a late stage unicorn kind of situation where you know maybe two different fund groups are holding you know p- pick a unicorn and they value them differently. But you know, even that is not an issue under the Act. Um, you know, fair value uh, is an art; it's not a science. Um, so even where the staff might have questions, those questions aren't going to be second guessing your number per se. Um, what they would be is wanting to make sure that you have a process, um, that that process complies with with the statute, uh, and that you're following it. So you know the the level of the staff's review 
when it comes to specific marks, it, it, it's important to understand that it's not about second guessing. It's about understanding the process. They may ask questions, but I ultimately I think that's probably rare. Um, now, one, one caveat is the staff and the commission is always working on its sort of big data. Um, and, you, and you never know, you know, they're always looking for new ways to, to crunch the data. You know, the, the, the funds give an awful lot of information to, to the commission uh, in all, all sorts of different filings that they have to make. And I think rightfully so, the commission has, has said and the staff has, has said, well, you know, we should use this information and see if we can, if we can identify outliers. But, but, you know, in terms of second guessing this or that mark, that, that really is not, not the staff's role. Got it. So it's more like um, about ensuring that the process is, is robust and legitimate as opposed to the, the individual marks. Right. Yeah, you know, even in the context of an exam, say, you know, a routine exam, um, where you know exams, you know, formerly OC, w- is in and looking at your looking at your compliance manual, um, there it's very unlikely that they're going to be second guessing the number. What they're going to care about is the process. They're going to care that you have a robust process that it's being followed, it's being documented. Um, you know, in particular for BDCs where almost almost all the time there aren't market prices for these assets so they're having to the board's having to determine fair value I mean, that, that's how the act uh sets it up uh slightly different than the sort of a gap view of the world uh, they're going to care about the process and and i think it you know with regard to valuation it's worth mentioning that for um for 50 years the the commission's guidance on determining fair value, which is basically the, the value of any asset that doesn't have a market price, was, um, uh, was in a document called ASR 118. It was just commission guidance. And that's 50 years ago. And just very recently, the commission has adopted a rule on fair value called uh, Rule 285. And starting in, I think it's next year in 2022, that will be the process that, that all registered funds and BDCs have to follow. Uh, in terms of BDCs, it probably won't change the process very much. And, you know, I think having worked on that rule, the rule, the purpose of the rule was more to codify what people had generally been doing and create sort of a more robust process around it and get it on the books as a rule rather than commission guidance. Um, but, you know, for BDCs, it probably won't change very much since they are Fair valuing almost their entire portfolio anyway, um, in in the general in the general case, um, but you know that that's important for for BDCs to I'm sure they do know about this, but to know that you know starting pretty soon they're they're going to be working under under a rule when it comes to valuation rather than commission guidance that was it's actually a pair of releases one from 1969 and one from 1970 so you know 50 years old and they were very you know they, they worked very well for 50 years but. The purpose of this rulemaking was to to come up with something more modern, given the changes in in compliance, frankly, in in the last fifty years. What exactly constitutes a robust process, or what would be some red flags that would make regulators think that a process is is lacking? Well, it's hard it's hard to answer that question because it's going to depend a lot on what you do and what you invest in, and this is discussed in the rule release. 
that each board has to has to decide where are our risks where you know treat valuation as a risk like any other risk um, you know this, this this rulemaking came out of a view that you know we understand boards time is limited and um, rather than inundating boards with reams of information which may or may not be useful to them that boards need to in consultation with the advisor of course you know the manager they need to look at their fund they need to look at what they invest in and they need to come up with a process on a risk-based uh, you know a risk-based process that makes sense for them you know whether that means um, and i think you know this is probably common in bdc's having you know i don't know call it a quarter or a, or some fraction of the portfolio get get an outside pricing report uh, on sort of a rolling basis, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, but you know, it, there is no easy answer to that. Unfortunately, um, boards and, and this is how the investment company set, set it up. And I think it's, there's a lot of wisdom to it. Um, boards as sort of the, the only disinterested person in the room, because advisors are, especially when it comes to, uh, the value, right. Which determines their fees and their reputation are heavily conflicted the board is the person in the room that is not conflicted and they need to think hard about what does that mean um, in terms of a process that gets you to the right place understanding of course that you know and this happens all the time i don't i don't know if, if it happens in bdc land that much but you know as i say you know, it's not uncommon for two different funds to value fair value something differently and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, per se. There's nothing wrong with that because it's an art. It's not a science. But, you know, you need to think about and think hard about what you invest in um, and what that what a process means that would get you to a, a value that you can support. Are there any other especially relevant regulatory matters relating to BDCs at the moment? I know, you know, valuation is talk about that forever but you know especially given consolidation in the industry or just in general are there any other especially relevant regulatory matters uh pertaining to bdcs right now i think um and, and will can will can speak to this better than i can but i think it was in 2019 it might have been 2018 actually T time has sort of lost all meaning in in the corona uh, the the commission adopted uh, comprehensive offering reform for bdcs and closed end funds and and you know sort of and again will can speak to this better than i can but but in a sort of sentence, what it did was um, bring BDC and closed-end fund offering rules under the Securities Act sort of up to relative par, I won't say exactly par, but as close as we could get it with how operating companies offer their securities in a much more flexible way than had been previously done. I agree. The final rules took effect last August. Um, but we'd sort of been operating under a, a world in which the statute was self-affecting since uh, earlier in 2019. Um, but following the final offering reform rules, I think we've seen more efficient capital markets activity out of the BDC space. We've seen a number of the larger BDCs take advantage of their well-known seasoned issuer or WIXI status um, in connection with their registration statement filings. We've seen uh, an increase, or I don't know that it's necessarily that significant, but we've certainly seen an increase in the, in the numbers of at-the-market offering programs or ATMs, um, in part because the, 
the ability to raise capital through those meat channels has become more efficient with with offering reform. Yeah, um, that makes sense. So, you know, we certainly saw a lot of BDCs come to market with bond offerings over the past, say, year, just as markets were very receptive to that sort of thing. So just so I understand clearly, these rules have, have made that a bit easier for BDCs. Is that right? Yes and no. I th- I think you know a, a bond offering the, the mechanics of it are largely the same as what they would have been prior to completion of offering reform. It's it's the speed with which you can get a registration statement up and effective. Um, you know if you're if you're a Wixi, meaning sort of one of the larger BDCs, those registration statements are automatically effective. So someone could file a registration statement today and do one of those large bond offerings you know this afternoon or Monday. Um, and that has really given a lot of increased flexibility to to the industry. There's also an ability for these Wixies to increase the aggregate amount of securities that they've offered without going back to the SEC. So that allows for a little more flexibility in, you know, oh, our shelf was for a billion dollars and this next offering will cause us to go to 1.2 billion. There, there are now ways, uh, as at least for the Wixie component of the of the industry, to to address that on a, without going back to the SEC and without having to prepare and file a new registration statement. Yeah, just tagging tagging on to what Will said. You know, I mean, ultimately, what it what 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 it gives you is having to make less reviewable filings, right? And um, you know, in IM, you know, in the division of investment management, there there is an entire office, a disclosure office, full of people who, um, you know, whose job is to review filings, and um, and BDCs and closed end funds as well were were in a position where they had to make um, it was not common where they if they wanted to offer securities they'd have to make a reviewable filing and if you're making a reviewable filing you're going to get comments um, or at least you're going to have to work through that process with your reviewer um, you know this this is completely different than how operating companies you know have been operating since you know offering reform was adopted in the in I think 2005. So, so for a long time, you know, investment companies, you know, BDCs, closed end funds, open end funds too, but that's obviously not as relevant. The offering rules that applied to them had never really developed uh, for a long time. And um, whereas for operating companies over the decades, going back decades uh, with shelf registration and, and Wixie status and all these, all these great, wonderful tools that they've acquired over the years were able to go to market much more efficiently. And that was the purpose of offering reform was to basically bring down all of those, you know, new technology, whatever you want to call it, that had been immensely beneficial to operating companies and apply it to BDCs and closed end funds. And Bill, here, here's an example of how offering reform impacted, maybe not this, you know, as a pure sort of process perspective is, you used to see BDC registration statements that could exceed 300 pages. And that's, I think, puts a lot of work on the staff as they sort of work through reviewing that and providing thoughtful comments. We are now down to, with incorporation by reference, the average BDC shelf registration is more on the order of 50 or 60 pages. Um, and that means you know, there's a lot of cost savings for the, for the issuer. But I think also the SEC staff is able to review more expeditiously and focus more on on key issues in the disclosure. Got it. So on a slightly different topic, but also related to uh, 
BDC capital markets activity from what you're seeing from clients? What are your expectations for more M&A and consolidation among BDCs in the near future, given the recent level of activity we've seen there over the past couple of years? Oh, Bill, it's hard to pull into our little crystal balls. But um, what I will note is that we've seen sort of three types of transactions in the past six months. We've seen mergers of affiliated BDCs. We've seen examples of unaffiliated BDC mergers. And we've also seen transactions proposed in which an existing BDC would uh, change its investment advisor to a, to a new entity. Um, look, I think consolidation continues to be an area where people are exploring opportunities. I don't know that we can tell you whether activity over the back half of the year will be flat up or down as compared to the first half, but it is an area where uh, people, where managers continue to focus. And I think directors ask questions of the management teams to discuss where there might be opportunities to enhance the size of the BDC and perhaps recognize some economies of scale. Well, I guess I'll ask you to look at the crystal ball one more time, but you know, we saw so much growth in BDCs, you know, especially say, you know, coming out of the financial crisis through through uh, recently, is there room for more BDC launch launches in the near future? Do you think more asset managers who don't have BDCs might want to uh, get into that space now? Or, you know, if they haven't done it by now, you know, it, it seem it would be less likely. Any, any thoughts on that? I, I think credit continues to be a very active and attractive space. And we're routinely having conversations with managers either with BDCs on their platform or without BDCs on their platform as to whether a, a new product in the BDC space might make sense for them. So I think you can expect to see additional product launches in the, in the coming months and years. All right. I mean, well, I mean, what are some of the, the pros and cons that they, they work through that from, from your perspective when, when deciding whether or not to get into the BDC game you know, or not? You know, for for a manager that's looking at their first BDC, um, there's a lot of discussions about comfort levels surrounding disclosing the portfolio investments on a quarterly basis with their fair value. That sort of ties back to the the valuation discussion that that Dave was leading. Um, There's a lot of questions and we spend a lot of time working with people as to what the organizational and offering costs look like and sort of helping managers model you know what what the economics to them might look for a bdc it's spending time educating the management team so they can then educate investors as to as to whether the product really makes sense you know from from the investor perspective as well so it, it it's it's part of my job i actually really enjoy it, it it gets more into the counseling side and you you sort of get to put on a hat of of, of thinking more more globally and, and sort of bigger picture than looking at a registration statement and saying you know we need to add a risk factor on X, Y, or Z. I was just going to tag on to a little bit. Will said, you know, from a completely different perspective, as you know, somebody who, you know, I've only I've only been at Proskauer uh, two weeks, so, uh, but I was at the regulator for almost a decade, and and what I what I think I've seen is people who have been running private credit platforms happily for however long they've been running them, um, outside the Investment Company Act. And then they want to do a permanent capital vehicle, whether, you know, they want to do a BDC 
And now they have to talk to somebody different at their law firm, um, not just their private credit or private fund guys. They have to talk to their registered fund guys and they learn about this thing called the Investment Company Act of 1940, which has um, all sorts of limitations and regulations that they were not aware of. And that that can be uh, that can be, I think um, it's just something they have to work through. Right. Um, there are places where the act, especially around affiliated transactions, um, where what they may have been doing happily as just a registered advisor, um, now they, they're not able to do, or they're not able to do without getting relief from the commission. And, and I think there, there are other places where, you know, they, they run into the rough edges of the company act. And, and I mean, Will could probably speak to this better than I can, because again, I've, I've been in a different chair. Um, but at a minimum, I think that's probably a big education process and probably a bit of a surprise when they, you know, when they hear from from a 40 act lawyer, from a company act lawyer that, you know, things that are perfectly fine to do in the private funds world, um, you can't do exactly the same way when you're in the registered funds world. And that's sort of your that's your price of admission if you want to take retail money or if you if you want to launch a bdc we often refer to it as a regulatory tax for for lack of a better sort of a more sophisticated term but there, there's a cost overlay there's a regulatory overlay and there's a, a limitation on flexibility overlay that makes sense at the end of the day for uh for getting access to to retail investor money it sounds like you know, and and I mean, again, maybe maybe I'm I'm too recently out of the commission, so I I still have to be careful about my tenses and what hats I wear. But you know that that probably that's how that's that's what that's what Congress intended, isn't it? That um, if you want to take retail money, um, you know, you have to deal with the Investment Company Act. Um, and you know, it's you know, look, the Act was not written with BDCs in mind. Clearly, um, that's just that's historically true. Um, and you know, BDCs when they were created in 1980. Um, they just tacked a bunch of new sections at the end of the act. I mean, literally, that's what they did. They just added a bunch of sections at the end and, you know, made some tweaks and um, called it a day. And, you know, for, for a long time, the staff on the commission didn't really have to deal with it that much. Um, you know, during my time on the staff, it just seems like the cadence of issues. And, you know, I joined in 2012. So, you know, after the great financial crisis. But, you know, the cadence of issues that BDCs have and touches that they have with the staff, um, it just seems like it just, that, that drum gets just keep, get, keep getting louder and faster, um, you know, as they run into issues, you know, trying to do the things that, um, that either they've otherwise were doing in the private fund space or, you know, things, frankly, that, you know, open-end or closed-end fund, you know, mutual funds or just regular old closed-end funds have been doing for decades because, you know, they sort of had a leg up, a head start on, on filling the rule book with rules that let them do things without having to go to the commission on one-on-one -on -one individual bases, which, look, there are only so many people on the staff. These issues are complicated. Um, every BDC seems to be different. Every platform is different. All these solutions have to be largely bespoke. And that means complexity and that means time. And as I say, there's only so many people on the staff to deal with these things. Um, so, you know, I, I, 
again, you know, having been in the regulator's chair, I, I, I sometimes sense the frustration that people may have with how long things take, how many questions they're getting. But um, in a way, it's just it's sort of a natural thing, um, given the complexity of the products, the way that the way the act sort of was structured to add BDCs and um, that BDCs have not had the benefit of, you know, 50 to 75 years of dealing with the staff and filling the rule book with rules. You know, there's we, you know, there's a whole rule book full of rules for mutual funds that let them do all manner of things. And BDCs are not there yet. Makes sense. Well, all right, guys, I appreciate it. Before we go, are, are there any other BDC industry topics that you think are especially timely or, or noteworthy at this moment in time? You know, I can't really think of anything. The, the conversations that we continue to have with our clients are capital markets activity, consolidation activity, and, and new product launches. Well, uh, well, thank you both for joining. There's always a lot to, to talk about on this topic, so um, could have gone on for a long time, but we appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thanks, Will. Pleasure. Thank you, Bill.